We've been with you for four years. My wife has been with you for longer than that. Um, Firstly, I was here four years ago as an intern. I uh, stood up about somewhere over there um, with lovely orange glowing lights coming down on me, which made me look as if I was jaundiced. Um, Thankfully, those days are past. Um, And now in this current capacity, three years as pastoral assistant. A lot of water has uh, flowed onto the bridge during that time. A lot has happened. Uh, Maybe it's a better way to say it that a lot of inches have been added to the waistline. A lot of mysterious foreign colored hairs have appeared in the hairline. At least I still have mine though. Um. (laughs) And as a congregation... Uh, we've went through, you've went through a, a period of great change and growth um, for many reasons. The building's been renovated. We continue to, uh, continue to be a, a great and wonderful asset. It's fantastically decorated because of the wedding yesterday. Um, we've had home groups. We've had student work. It's all seen a great multiplication. So many changes, so many privileges on our behalf to be part of, and we're very thankful for them all. I'm very thankful for all of you that you've allowed us to be part of it. It's been a great joy, a great privilege to be with you through it all. Uh, it seems actually quite strange for me to be up here saying all this because I'm doing it for the second time. Um, this is actually the second time I've left you. Um, I don't know what that means, but it's... Uh, could I be back again? I don't know. Third time lucky, maybe. <laughs> um, but, but I want to thank you all. I want to thank you all very sincerely. Uh, for your friendship, for your support, for your encouragement, for being with us throughout this time. We've been blessed uh, by you. We've been blessed by God as we've been here as part of your fellowship. Um, and to be able to work with, for the gospel with you and alongside you. Um, you have been a committed and a gracious people to us. I thank you all for uh, your patience with me. Uh, you've been very gracious, particular, I salute your perseverance with my preaching. Um, if nothing else, you have uh, learned the lesson of how it shouldn't be done and appreciate your minister far more. Uh, finally, as well, I would like to ask for your forgiveness. Forgiveness for the mistakes and errors that I've made uh, during my time amongst you. Some things didn't work out the way that I would have liked them to, and I take responsibility for all that. But if I have caused anyone hurt, um, I do give my apologies. But you're expecting a sermon, so I can't just walk away at that. So what am I to say to you? Well, very unoriginally, I think the first thing I thought of to preach on today would be Paul to the Ephesian elders and his final farewell speech in Acts 20. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 20. You'll find it on page 100, sorry, 1117 of the church Bible, and we take it up at verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything, preach to you anything that would be helpful to you, 
but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jew and Greek that they must turn in repentance, turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock for which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of God's church, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be in your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord himself, Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with them all and prayed. They all wept and embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. If I could sum up in a soundbite what I want to leave you with, it would be this. It would be the courage to be Protestant. Now I hope before I end today and before I finish you will know what I I mean by that. This idea comes from a, a little book, the title of a book I read a few years ago by a man called David Wells. Now as an Ulsterman it's important that you hear me correctly when I say this. I don't mean unionist or anti-Catholic or anything like that. What I mean is that as a church, you need to have the courage to hold and to practice the historical understanding of the Protestant faith. The faith that the reformers defined for us and helped us to understand more clearly. It's in this faith that I believe you and this church will find the understanding that you need not only to survive in this world, but to actually impact it with the gospel. So this morning I want to to flesh out from this passage a little of what that might mean for you. I'm not going to preach on it all. I would be here all day, but I want to highlight certain things. This farewell to the Ephesian elders is, is, is interesting for many reasons, but one of the most significant things about it is that it's the only sermon that Luke records in the book of Acts that is exclusively given to Christians. All the others are evangelistic in tone and content. This one is only for Christians, only addressed to Christians. 
Now it's interesting here, as Paul prepares to leave for Jerusalem, the emphasis he has on specific things in this passage. And if you add to that what we know from the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, you get a picture of what Paul considered to be important. Not only for the leadership, but for the whole church. So the first thing I see in this sermon, the striking emphasis that Paul has, is on teaching and preaching the word. Paul looks back over his ministry he had in Ephesus. And a lot of what he mentions is to do with the time he spent preaching and teaching the gospel. Verse 20, he preached anything that was necessary. Verse 21, he declared to them the need of repentance and faith. Verse 24, his life is nothing compared to preaching the gospel of grace. Verse 25, he preached the kingdom. Verse 27, he proclaimed the whole will of God. Verse 30, he told them about a danger of false teaching. Verse 31, he warns them. Verse 32, he commits them to the word of God's grace. Verse 35, he even teaches them here a saying of Jesus. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Paul looks back over all of what he did and he highlights this. And I think he does it deliberately because he's setting a pattern to follow. The elders he addresses are to follow his, his pattern, follow his example, to teach this gospel as he taught it. In short, they are to put the teaching of Paul and the word at the very heart of everything that they are everything that they do. For us today, that is equivalent of putting the Bible at the heart of what we do, the message of Scripture. And that brings me to the first thing I want to highlight for you. As Paul did, as the Reformers would do as well, when they gave us the slogan, Scripture alone, you must put the teaching of the Bible at the heart of your church. Christianity, more than any other religion, if that is the right word to use, is a religion of the mind. God did not give us a picture to look at, an instrument to play. He gave us a book. He gave us a word. When the reformers put the emphasis back in the 16th century, they put the emphasis back on the preaching of the word rather than the sacraments or anything else. They were, what they were doing was bringing the per- church back to the emphasis that Paul had and that the church had always had. Be transformed, said Paul, by the renewing of your minds in Romans. The mind is the key to the transformation that the gospel brings. As the word which is given by the Spirit powerfully grips our minds, it begins to uh, a process that results in changed lives. Thinking differently will mean acting differently. And because you put the teaching of the Bible at the heart of the church, that means you have to have the courage to put doctrine at the heart of the church. Doctrine is simply a teaching, teaching about God. Things that you hold about God, about humanity, about the world to be true and correct. In our time, the church doesn't like doctrine. It downplays it, it minimizes it, it even forgets about it altogether. People are more likely to be heard saying that doctrine is bad because it divides people. But you have to have the courage to put the biblical doctrine at the heart of who you are and what you are. 
so to allow the word to do its work in your midst. Changing your attitudes, shaping your motives, renewing your desires so that you think and act Christianly. Doctrine is vital. It's necessary. And I think it will mean two things for you. Firstly, it will mean that you must hold firm to the teaching of the Bible that has been passed on through the generations, from the apostles and prophets to today. So you need to own those great truths of Scripture, the great truths of the creeds and the confessions. They are accurate statements of what the Bible teaches. They are not the Bible themselves, but they, are, they help us to understand what the Bible is saying, what God is saying to us. It means that you will need to draw boundaries between what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. Paul spoke to the elders about the importance of being on their guard about false teaching. False teaching that would come to the church both out with and within. You must have the courage to hold firmly to the historic understanding of Christianity and to defend it if and when necessary. That means telling people that they are wrong. It means discernment. It means using your mind. It means thinking things through. It means being prepared to stand against false teaching. In our world, that is almost the ultimate heresy, to actually be prepared to disagree with someone. But the message of the Bible, it is a definitive body of knowledge. It has been passed on through the generations. It does not change. What Paul believed, you believe. What saved Timothy and Titus saves us today. That same message, that same gospel of Jesus Christ the biblical understanding. You must be prepared to stand firm and to draw boundaries between what is biblical and what is not. Let me give you a quote from the church historian Carl Truman. He says this, a movement that cannot or will not draw boundaries or that allows the modern cultural fear of exclusion to set its theological agenda is doomed to lose its doctrinal identity. Once it does... It will drift from whatever moorings it may have had in historic Christianity. It will take courage to stand on these truths and to hold to them. The world will hit you for it. But that's what Jesus told us to expect. That's what Paul endured. Look at verse 19. But secondly, it will mean more than just owning those great truths of the Bible. It's not enough to say that we just believe these. I know plenty of people who could quote me the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter and verse from memory. But the problem is their lives tell me a different story. You see, it's perfectly possible to believe the great doctrines of the Reformation, the great doctrines of the Bible, and to be a materialist. It's possible to be able to say you believe the Bible and consciously or unconsciously totally motivated and driven in your life by a worldly philosophy or ideology or desire. You must be prepared to allow God's word not only to show you what to believe but how you are to think. To allow the word of God not just to change the bricks in the doctrinal wall but to, to change the entire structure and the way you think. To rewire, re sorry, to rewire, get their words out, how we think as well as what we think. 
It means allowing the Bible to shape and develop your worldview. A year ago, I did some uh, a training event with, with mentors, and we looked at this idea of, idea of worldview and what it means. And Let me give you a few quotes to help you realize what I'm trying to say here. William Lane Craig, the apologist, says this, Our churches are unfortunately overly populated with, with people whose minds as Christians are going to waste. They may be spiritually regenerate, but their minds have not been converted. They still think like non-believers. Or let me give you this quote from a man called Charles Donahue. The sad reality, according to observations of trends, analysis, and personal testimonies, is that people can be genuinely converted to Christ, that is, believe that Jesus is the Savior, and still not mature in the way that they look at life. Another way to say this is that a person can be a Christian and not operate from a biblical world and life view, or even know that such a thing exists. One reason Christians are not making more of a difference in the world is that our worldviews are syncretized with other deeply ingrained views that are contrary to the Christian faith. This, in my opinion, is where the rubber hits the road in our world today. In an age of information overload, when we are constantly bombarded with information and philosophies and understandings that are contrary to the will of God, we must be able to think biblically. We must be prepared to consider everything from education to politics to social action to the way we view money and material things from a biblical perspective. We need more than ever before to have a biblical worldview. Because in our age, the general Christian consensus has disappeared. It's gone. We can no longer expect people to think and understand things the way we do. And consequently, we are going to run in more and more now to philosophies and ideologies that will compete in our minds to run our lives. And it will take great courage to allow the Bible to govern the way you think and not go along with the current cultural norms and traditions of a society. We're seeing this at the minute with the marriage debate. We're seeing it with the homosexuality debate. Let me try and give an illustration of just how important this is, this idea is, and why it makes a real difference. Some time ago, uh, I was listening to, I think it was Radio 5 Live, uh, to a phone-in with Nikki Campbell, and the topic was, I think, um, IVF treatments for same-sex couples are, are, are being funded on the NHS. Or it was something to do with IVF treatments anyway. And during the course of the debate, someone phoned in and made a point. And I'll never forget this. He made a point, and his point was this, that basically we have been using artificial insemination in cows for 30 years, so why should humans be any different? Artificial insemination uh, is what you basically take uh, semen from a bull and artificially put it into a cow's womb, AI services. My father's used it for many years. But do you notice what that person did when he phoned in? You notice the way in which his understanding is that human beings and cows are on a level playing field. They're no different in his view. A human being is simply an animal. Now, that doesn't sound awful, does it? 
But let's think about it a little more seriously. I know this. How do farmers treat cows who have grown old and are no longer of any use? You send them to the abattoir. Bye-bye. They slaughter them. Get rid of them. How does our society treat older people if they're simply animals? No longer of any real value to society economically. How do we treat them? If they're only animals. What do farmers do with cows? They herd them, they manage them, they put, perform mass vaccinations on them, and they make a profit out of them. Would you be willing to allow the same to be done with you if you're only an animal by the rich and powerful? Yet this is exactly what I was taught in my biology lessons in school. That as a human being, I was an animal. No better than the cows in the field. You see how dangerous an idea like that can actually become. But the Bible doesn't allow us to say that human beings are only animals. It tells us that our value, that our worth, is not simply in our being, but in our being made in the image of God. And you see the difference that that makes to the way you will view other people. The way you will take a view on health care and social provision. It transforms the way you think about humanity and inevitably will transform the way you act towards your fellow human beings. Let me quote Carl Truman again to you. He says this, Sin attacks humanity at its very foundations, at the level of what motivates us and what ends we strive for. It shapes the very structures of society and the philosophies that justify those structures. It strives continually to remake us in its image. And unless we can see the difference between the kind of values instilled in us by the world and those which the Bible would have us develop, we are doomed to be forever caught in a web of worldliness that dishonors God. Have the courage to put the Bible at the center of your lives, at the center of this fellowship. Own its great truths. Teach its great doctrines. Defend them. Allow them to renew your minds, to permeate below the surface, shape your thinking and your motivations. Be Protestant. Only then, I believe, will you be able to live in the midst of this world with the perspective of the next. The second emphasis we see here in Paul in this passage is, of course, his emphasis on the gospel, on Christ. You see, because it's, it's impossible to have the Bible at the heart of everything without also having Christ at the heart of everything. Because, quite simply, at the heart and center of the Bible is Christ, Jesus. Paul declared to them the whole will of God, the whole story of God's dealings in this world, how he intervened in human life, how he rescued and redeemed his own people. That all took place and was completed through Christ at the cross. Paul understood that the greatest need for his hearers was not a moralistic message, but rather a message of a gracious Savior who rescued us from our own sinfulness. Paul preached a challenge to repent from our own sinful behavior and to embrace Christ by faith alone. For it's only through the gospel of Christ's life, his death, 
his resurrection and ascension, that we find the forgiveness and the restoration that we need as sinful people to take away our guilt before a holy God and to set us free to serve and love our Savior and our neighbor. That was his food and drink. That was his life to proclaim this message, to teach this message of Christ-centered, the Christ-centered gospel. Verse 24. The Reformers, during the 16th century Reformation, in many ways rediscovered for the church the wonder of the gospel of God's grace. They gave us a message that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So my challenge to you is simply this. Have the courage. Have the courage to believe and to proclaim this biblical message of God's grace that comes to us through Christ alone. It doesn't come any other way. It doesn't come through good works or special religious deeds. It can't be bought or earned with effort. It comes to us as a free gift. We receive it by faith alone, by trusting in the death of Jesus for us, understanding that as he died, he died for us in our place, that when he rose again, he rose for us, that in him and through him, we experience the grace of God and receive the life that God gives us. There is no other savior of humanity or this world. There is none in whom we can place our hope. Only Christ. Only Christ saves. Only Christ brings us through death to eternal life. Only Christ brings us to God. Only by faith do we receive him because none of us are worthy of this mercy that God has shown us. Yet he has wonderfully and mercifully had compassion on us. And through Christ alone has taken away our guilty stains and robed us, robed us in robes of righteousness that make us perfect in his sight. Friends, have the courage to be Protestant, to believe this message, to proclaim this message of salvation in Christ alone. The world we inhabit is fast on its way to judgment and despair. Our society has turned its back on God and therefore on its only hope of redemption and renewal. It neither recognizes its need of grace nor is willing to accept the majesty of Christ. And it will take courage in such a society and culture to hold firmly to a message of repentance towards God and faith in Christ alone. But you must do it. You must do it for yourselves believing these things and holding on to them. And you must do it for the world around you, praying earnestly that God would open the eyes of the blind to see, the ears of the deaf to hear the wonder and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In doing these things, you will face ridicule and you will be misunderstood. It will cost you much. It will cost you as an institution. It will cost you as a fellowship. And it may well cost you individually. In the years ahead, I don't know. In this nation, we may be be called to suffer more than we have ever suffered before in this country. But no matter what lies ahead of us, this nation will always need repentance and faith in Jesus. Men and women in Scotland will still need to hear about what God has done for them and the love that he has shown them in Christ. 
there will be many who will tell you the exact opposite. That the church will only survive if its message changes, if it modernizes or progresses to a better understanding, by which, of course, they really mean an easier understanding that doesn't demand repentance or the need of forgiveness or the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. But you must have the courage to be Protestant, to believe and proclaim the biblical gospel of God's grace in Christ alone that comes to us by faith alone. Then, my friends, I believe you will experience and see the glory of God and know the blessing that he alone pours out. I cannot make any promises to you as I leave that what lies ahead of you will be easy. But I can promise you this, that if you have courage to believe and proclaim these things, it will be worth every moment. So friends, that is it. My time here is over. But friends, this is not an end. It is not even a beginning. For you, it is simply business as usual. My work has finished, but your work remains. And so, like Paul, Paul to the Ephesian elders, it is my desire and my prayer that I leave you having proclaimed to the best of my ability the gospel of God's grace. And so I commit you to that word of his grace. I commit you in the full and certain knowledge that that grace is able to save, to equip, and to preserve you. And to give you that inheritance that Jesus himself has promised that will never fade, perish, or spoil. That is kept in heaven for you. May God be pleased to bless you, to strengthen you in the truth that he has given us. And to bring his kingdom here in this church, in this city, and in this nation. Thank you, and God bless. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.